Welcome to STEM Invest Podcast, episode 61. In this episode, Dr. Peter Dalmaris talks with Dr. Jeff Vienna. Jeff is a staff scientist managing CERN's national and international teacher training programs and investigating teachers' conceptions of particle physics. He completed his PhD in physics education research in cooperation with the University of Vienna through the Austrian doctorate program at CERN. Previously, Jeff worked as a high school physics, philosophy and psychology teacher in Vienna, Austria. Aside from his postdoctoral research projects and the coordination of CERN's teacher programs, Jeff is also heavily engaged in CERN's S Cool Lab. This is Stemiverse Podcast Episode 61. Stemiverse is a podcast produced by Tech Explorations. Our mission is to help educators become awesome at teaching STEM, be it at home or in the classroom. Whether you are a professional or casual teacher teaching in a classroom, or a parent or caretaker teaching at home, this podcast brings you the knowledge and experiences of practitioners, academics, entrepreneurs and lifelong learners who are passionate about education and strive every day to help our children prepare for life in a world of radical change, and why not abundance. Well, Jeff, it's Great to have you on the podcast on Stimvis. How are you today? Good morning uh, or good afternoon. Good evening Thank for you us. Thank so much for having me. I'm, 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 I'm very happy to be invited. I'm very excited for this interview. Yes, I'm very good. Thank you. I've got to ask, where are you? Because it looks like quite like, are you on a spaceship right now? I can see stars. There's like a big pipe on your left side as I can see you on the screen. What's happening? It sometimes feels like we are on a spaceship. It's true. I well, I you know, I, I don't want to lie to you. I'm I'm not in the Large Hadron Collider at the moment. Um, I'm in one of CERN's coolest um, conference rooms, and uh, we have a very nice backdrop where you can kind of see how it looks like underground. It's a real yeah. picture. The stars are not there, but. Um, <laughs> It's, it's 100 meters it's, down, right? Some idea. It's exactly it's exactly 100 meters below my feet mm. at the moment. Yes, I'm all. And it spans. So you are at CERN, the European Research Facility for Particle Research, and yes. you've got this, perhaps one of humanity's most complex research machines, right? It's like it's it's nothing simple, and I think as far as the scale is concerned and the complexity to put this thing together, it's probably up there among the, the most complex things that humans have built. So what happens there? Well, I mean, as, as you said, CERN is really the... Um Originally, it was the European Laboratory for Nuclear Physics. By now, um, we reuse our name and we don't call it European. We call it everywhere. It's really the world's largest uh, facility for um, high energy physics, particle physics. And it's really true. I mean, the Large Hadron Collider is most likely the most complex machine ever built, for research purpose at least. It's what we are most famous for, but it's not the only thing that we are. There's a few uh, other things. That there is a lot of stuff going on, uh, but of course, our our prime focus is particle physics. It's high energy physics, and we are really uh, mainly conducting fundamental research, meaning yeah. that we are really on the on the forefront of of human knowledge. And so, um, yeah, it's. Um, um, I've it, got to say that it's a fantastic place. It's like a. CERN has changed humanity in many ways, and uh, one of those ways is the invention of the web, which happened perhaps in, in your building, like Tim Berners-Lee. Where was he? 
it was very close to us. It's absolutely true. I mean, my uh, my my previous office was like 20 meters away from the from the huh. office where Tim Berners Lee really had the idea for the web. Because yeah. in the beginning, it was not even intended to be a worldwide web. It was really just the how. I mean, the simple question 30 years ago: How do I share data from one? cube it was not even a real computer to the other one that was the main idea that's where it all started and uh, it was almost to the day 30 years ago yeah. we are so currently in our our celebration of the web 30 so to speak yeah and like 30 years later we've got facebook and twitter we got a chance to to do this interview i mean and I youtube exactly. and my kids are now uh, leaving me alone because they're watching netflix Something ridiculous, uh, probably on Netflix. I'm just like I'm just joking, but it's just you never know where this research will go. And uh, like, knowledge is such a fluid thing that just you just don't know where it's going to take you. And um, like, we, we're going to get all that because today we are talking about not not about particle physics, really, although this is an amazing topic, maybe one day. Uh, but we're talking about the education that um, CERN as an institution is is offering to teachers from around the world who can spend a bit of time at CERN, learn about a lot of amazing things that we are going to talk about, and then bring that knowledge and the experience back to the students. Um, exactly, so, yes. But before that, I really have to say about, it feels mind-boggling to me, the fact that, you know, that the thing that you've got in, at least in the image behind you, is perhaps uh, one of the biggest machines built ever. But its purpose is to learn about the, 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 the tiniest scale matter and energy. Like you need something such so, so big to go yeah. down to the little, really, really tiny level. And it's just it's hard to comprehend. That's true for me. I've been at CERN now for more than eight years, and it's still mind-blowing, I uh, have to confess. But it's not just this huge machine, which is the accelerator, uh, which we use to accelerate particles with. It's also our particle detectors, because yeah. after all, if you want to investigate something, what we usually do is we smash the particles together. And then, of course, we are talking about the... Uh, the smallest, uh, we don't even know what it is, to be honest. We don't know yeah. really what a particle yeah. is, but we know that it's tiny. Uh, yet our machines to detect them, the particle detectors, they are huge. They are cathedrals of science, if you want. They're 46 meters long, 26 meters high, weigh 7,000 tons. It's crazy. I mean, for something really tiny. So, yeah. Man, that, that takes us like, from one thing to the other. So you've got the, you've got the sensors, like we'll call them sensors. It's the detectors that you talk about, which got huge magnets. Like You need the power of a city to feed them, uh, to be able to detect what happens when particles collide. But then you've got the computer science component of that, because you can read the results in real time. You've got to scan them, store the data, then just that amount of volume that the detectors volume of data that detectors produce has to be stored in some kind of medium there's new research there to figure that out and they come yeah. need to come up with research techniques and and uh, analysis techniques that don't exist yet to <laughs> like and it, and uh, I mean, uh, you're absolutely right, but there's one more component even because we would love to store all the data that we create, but it's impossible because we are talking about uh, roughly, let's say, 1 billion collisions in all the big experiments together per second. 1 billion collisions per second. There is no way we can store all of it. And to be honest, we don't want to store all of that because not all of it is, you know, uh, yeah. is interesting for us. So our detectors, that's not done by humans, but our detectors in in splits of split seconds have to decide which data, what do we keep, what do we throw away? And uh, we throw away 
almost everything and we only keep like a tiny fraction. But of course, if you do it a long time, you get a lot of data out of it. Yeah. But I mean, that's, that's where a lot of innovation goes in. I mean, how can we make our algorithms faster? How can we detect uh, the, the, the cool stuff out of the, the vast majority? That's, that's the real tricky part, yeah. <sighs> Let's see if we can get back to this. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about uh, the work that you do with teachers now. So you are the manager of the teachers program at CERN. So CERN has got a program that involves teachers from all around the world. Um, there's member states and perhaps non-member states. That's we'll get into it. Why do teachers need to be involved in all this? Like this is like post post postgraduate stuff in particle mm -hmm. physics PhDs. Now a teacher goes to a class to teach, I know, year five, six, seven, like a basic Newtonian physics. Why do they need to be involved with all this? Ah, that's a that's a very nice question. Thank you. Um, um, well, let me let me maybe first uh, just start that or, or state. CERN has several main missions, and of course, I mean one of the main missions is fundamental research, but one of the other main missions is education. Um, there is no way in the world we can run a lab like this without uh, training the scientists of tomorrow. So we really put a lot of effort in. I myself, I was very fortunate to do my PhD at CERN. So I, I, I was one of the lucky ones to, to be educated at CERN. And uh, you need that. You need people to then uh, learn what's going on at CERN to eventually take over. So that's one of the main components. But of course, for that, we need university students who are already interested in physics, engineering, IT. Uh, but Unfortunately, the vast majority of people are not necessarily um, automatically drawn towards science. Let's put it this way, and uh, that's perfectly fine. We don't. Not everyone has to be or should should be a scientist. That would be a strange world to live in. Uh, but we do need informed people. We need. Ex well, <laughs> then again, maybe. <laughs> uh, so we we do need you know informed people, and yeah. uh, we need those who are interested to have a chance to make it into science, and those who then want to go into politics or arts, no. they should at least have an understanding of scientific understanding. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping. Um, so. Of course, we have to start earlier. So there's a big, big uh, motivation for us to start not just at university level. We want to uh, go further. Now, we would love to, to talk to high school students or even uh, primary school kids directly from the beginning. But there are just way too many of them. I mean, there are a lot of teachers out there, but the number is slightly um, smaller. So CERN, uh, now for more than 20 years, uh, has invested a lot of effort and money into uh, educating and training high school teachers. So we're really talking about, uh, we are aiming at high school teachers uh, who teach, let's say, uh, students of the age between 15 and 18, sometimes High school is also defined in some countries uh, from, yeah. let's say, age 12 to 18. So that's where we are, middle to high school. And uh, as you said, I mean, of course, um, there is a lot of in the curriculum, which is Newtonian physics and uh, maybe uh, what we sometimes call classical physics. Yeah. Uh, in some countries in the world, you have modern physics in the curriculum. But modern is then usually Einstein, 1905. So more than 100 years ago, it's not necessarily that modern. I mean, still better than not anything. So I'm not complaining about that. Uh, but we do see it. Um, there is a lot of need to 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 educate teachers in what's going on at the moment. Uh, I'm not saying that they don't know what's going on in particle physics. Most of them studied it at university. But there is so much advancement and so much new stuff to know. So that our motivation is we want to bring people, we want to bring teachers to CERN directly, 
have our scientists, experts in the field, tell them what's going on right now. And I'm literally meaning that there are people who work on a Nobel Prize winning machine, then take two hours of the time, come to my teachers, give a talk, and then go back to hopefully get a Nobel Prize at some point. So that's that's the that's the level of, of excitement that we have. And of course, why do we bring people to CERN or why do teachers want to travel to Geneva is we then can show them our beautiful lab. I mean, we want to show them where... Uh, science is uh, taking place at the moment, uh, which is a nice experience for them. But of course, it's a first-hand experience that they, they can then transfer to their students. So that's the that's the main motivation behind our teacher programs and uh, one of the many reasons why I consider myself very lucky to have this job, to be honest. So, this, uh, there, uh, I, I detected, <laughs> there's, there's a few reasons, there's a few things that happen in the teacher's program. Obviously, you've got the cutting edge knowledge that is transmitted, provided to the teachers that come over a relatively long way for a lot of them uh, to Geneva. The experience of being there uh, where these discoveries are being made is also significant, right? Because yeah, I guess like, you look like a very excited person uh, being there and are doing what you're doing. I guess that's what teachers will see when they come to uh, to you or to your colleagues and spend a bit of time with you. They see all this excitement about all the discovery that is taking place and you're like a normal day in the office. You know? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> a few more trillion, a few more trillion um, particle collisions later. So we discovered something today and that comes across as well. And then knowing you know, what the differences are between, or actually I should say the state of physics and the state of science between what they studied in university perhaps 20 years ago, perhaps even five years ago versus now, yeah. even that is uh, mind boggling in terms of like how much can happen with an instrument like that or with the efforts of, of scientists around the world. So all that put together make that experience uh, I guess, a, a lifetime experience for a lot of teachers. So what happens after that? And then I'm just fast forwarding a little bit now, but I'd like to come back to what happens while they're still there. But let's fast forward and see what the end result is. So those teachers eventually go back to their classrooms around the world again. So what yeah. normally happens once they get back? Um, speaking from experience, first, we, we like to call our teachers once they completed the teacher program alumni of our programs and as such ambassadors of CERN of science, uh, which, I mean, they are science teachers, they are already ambassadors, but now they really have this concrete case for CERN and they go to their classroom and we really, the feedback is just, just fantastic. Uh, the students get in touch with CERN or at least they are aware of CERN, not necessarily CERN. I mean, of course, as you say, the teachers come around, come from all around the world. So it's not just CERN. Of course, we are a, a prime example, but it's, it's more than that. It's fundamental research that uh, sometimes it's not it's not easy to grasp the the idea why we should even invest yeah. uh, both person power and money into advancing fundamental knowledge, but uh, it's something it's a case that uh, teachers can make. So that's one of the main things, and uh, we do see it. A lot of the teachers uh, come back with, to CERN with their students. They, uh, really? they are so fascinated. They travel back and, uh, with they, the groups. They travel because CERN really uh, runs a fantastic visits program. So we have a fantastic visit service. Uh, we have probably more than 120,000 visitors every year traveling to Geneva, visiting CERN. 
And uh, the majority, I think more than half by now, is uh, are teachers uh, with their students. So uh, this is really something where they are so fascinated. They bring their uh, students along, show them what they've experienced. And uh, I'm, I mean, they are multipliers. I mean, if they like something, they will share the enthusiasm with the students. And um, as I said earlier, we are not aiming for all of their students. That would be uh, crazy. But if some of them appreciate the scientific value, I think we yeah. already did a fantastic job. Yeah. And so, of course, I mean, that, that, that's, the, that's the cool thing. If you have thousands of teachers at hand and if they are motivated, something is happening. And, yeah. Uh, that's cool. I think, uh, they, as you said, not everybody has to become a scientist or an engineer or a mathematician. Or, there's plenty of other things that make life interesting, right? But I'm thinking that the, the experience and understand, deep understanding of, of science and the scientific method in my in my opinion experience it can really transform life like it can make you a a thinking person a, like a useful person a problem solving person a dependable and so many other things uh it's that that scientific way of thinking so do you think that a, a certain experience can also give the students and the teachers a little bit of that like the way of thinking um Per se, yes, but I would. Uh, I, I don't want to oversell uh, such an experience. Of course, it's it's not like ah oh now I understand the scientific method. But clearly, uh, if you're if you're appreciative of what's happening in fundamental research, yeah, you you need a deeper understanding of the scientific method, and that's clearly something. Uh, what I like the most when the high school students come to uh, CERN is that they uh, start to see first of all that science is not necessarily looking as it is portrayed in any mm. stereotype that you have. Of course, we have people who look like Einstein. Of course, we have uh, people with crazy hair. But they are, you know, this is a fraction. There are so many, especially young people in science. I mean, the majority at CERN, uh, the majority of people working at CERN are between the age of 27 and uh, 35. Uh, these are all the PhD students and postdocs. And um, that's what I care the most, that they see a diverse range of uh, both uh, women and men, of course, but also from around the world. This is um, th it's also one of the coolest things why I enjoy working at CERN so much. It's, it's a highly diverse uh, workplace. And as you said earlier, a standard day in the office could be that you go for lunch and you sit next to a Nobel Prize winner or a very important person who also advanced our field. It should not always be the yeah. Nobel Prize. Yeah, yeah. no. There's a lot of people for one Nobel Prize winner. It's like the tip of the iceberg, right? There's a lot of people exactly. around su support networks like, you know, Nobel Prize winners typically build on the shoulders of other giants or scientists yes. in general. Team method, that's another thing that I like about you know, science. It's not a solo effort, although, yeah. It's very hard to say that individual effort in any field of human life and achievement is true. It's pretty much never the case in anything. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, I mean, here at CERN, it's, it's so evident. I mean, uh, this beautiful machine behind me, it was built over over decades by thousands of people, and I'm really saying thousands of people, and all of them work together, and none of them got any, you know, uh, oh, that was my success. It's 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 a shared experience, and now hundreds, if not thousands, of people are operating this machine and and running it. So it's really, I mean, yeah, as you say, science by now there is no one scientist alone anymore. It's it's a it's a group effort, absolutely. Yeah. Humanity, awesome. <laughs> um, maybe uh, come come back. Uh, what I'm saying is like 
this is what is possible, right? This is what is possible if we can come up with a common goal and objective and then commit to it. Uh, so uh, I love it. Apollo program. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, all right. Um, moving forwards, uh, is there an ideal, like actually I shouldn't say ideal, but who is the teacher's program really for? Is it for any teacher, a particular mm-hmm. kinds of teacher, particular kinds of teacher from particular places? So, yeah. Like, who is eligible? <laughs> <laughs> That's another very good question. Uh, so um, CERN offers two different kinds of teacher programs. Uh, we have the national teacher programs where we bring together a group of uh, teachers from usually one country or let's say one language group. So mm. for example, we also have a Spanish language teacher program where teachers who speak Spanish come together for roughly one week. So those national teacher programs, these are one week programs. And then in addition, we also have the international teacher programs where we bring together a group of up to 48 teachers from all around the world. And they then stay at CERN for two weeks. So it's a more uh, advanced or at least a more advanced experience in that sense. And so if we distinguish between those two formats, uh, the national teacher programs, they are predominantly for teachers from member states and uh, associate member states. So at CERN, we have uh, about 30. Uh, oh, yeah, there we are. Very good. <laughs> I thought I'd show um, that. <laughs> Yeah, I think that makes way more sense. Exactly. So the national teacher programs, um, uh, I think even if you if you click on it, um, because then on the right hand side, uh, you will see the menu of all our member states. So these are the member states of CERN. Uh, Then we have down further down, we have the associate member states. uh, And uh, then we have uh, some non member states where we all we already started uh, doing selected national teacher programs. But as you can see, this is not covering all the countries in the world, uh, because at some point, we first have to focus on CERN's member and associate member states. And that's why I'm so happy that we also have the international teacher programs, where we have two in summer, uh, where, as I said, we bring together a diverse group of high school teachers from all around the world. Usually, we have 48 teachers from about 35 different nationalities, hmm. and they spend two weeks uh, in summer, either in July or in uh, August uh, at CERN. And... Um, I, I love all our programs, obviously, and all of them have their purpose. Uh, but of course, they are quite different in that sense that if you bring together a group from one country, you talk about your home curriculum, you talk about your experience, and that's absolutely uh, relevant. However, if you bring together 48 teachers from all around the world, the program per se is already important, but it's also, if not probably even more important, the experience the teachers make while being at CERN. Because these are really, uh, I would say, lifelong friendships that are started at CERN. And these are not just friendships where people then uh, meet each other in a couple of years down the road, but they also start working together. So we really have uh, perfectly fine examples of teachers from uh, different countries bringing together their students, either via the wonders of the World Wide Web or even by traveling to um, and, and visiting each other's each other. places. Yeah. So, um, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm very happy. I, we have one program every week, uh, which uh, gives you a little bit of an idea of our workload. So we really try to bring as many teachers uh, to CERN as possible. We are talking about roughly 1,000 high school teachers wow. um, per year. And uh, oh yeah, when I when I say uh, high school teachers, so we say uh, in service. That's really important for us. So people who are really actively teaching, and we call it science teachers because after all, in some countries, teachers do not teach 
only physics, they teach science. In some countries, they only teach physics. So we are very inclusive in that sense. As long as it's relevant to your daily practice, uh, you are considered a strong candidate for us. Right. So you do need to have a bit of physics background or, or at least gen general science. Um, exactly. So yes. because you, you talk about in your, in your program contains concepts that you need to that are, of course, physics, and to be able to follow the program, you need to have some familiarity with those concepts. And also, we want to make sure that what uh, the teachers gain from the program can then be used in their classroom. So if yeah. they are not necessarily teaching this kind of subjects in their classroom, they can still try to you know, sneak it in. But of course, it's way more meaningful if someone has to teach this in the classroom and wants to know what's going on, what can I tell my yeah. students at the moment. Yeah. So there's some, some kind of selection process where the teacher will put an application in and especially for teachers from Australia, um, uh, but for teachers from all around the world. For the international teacher programs, it is true. We have a very strict uh, application process. Uh, it's, it's good for us. There's a lot of interest from around the world, but it means that uh, we receive, I mean, unfortunately for the teachers, we receive way more applications than we have slots available. So the application process is quite strict in that sense that uh, teachers have to put some effort in it, um, meaning you have to fill out some questions. There are some mean questions which I came up with. Uh, I can share them with you from uh, last year's application process because we don't use them anymore, of course. So last year we asked, uh, looking at the standard model of particle physics, which one is your most favorite particle and why? Which is a very mean question. I admit that, but it gives us an idea of how, um, how relevant this program might be for a teacher because yeah. if you are able to answer that or if at least if you are able to make up your mind about it, no one needs to know what their favorite particle is. Uh, it gives us an idea of uh, what they do. So I it's true. Not of that. our application process um, is quite strict. Yeah. Um, but um, the good news are for the international programs, if uh, you submit a very good application and if the selection committee then uh, rates you or top ranks you and you are selected, you get a financial allowance that covers all your expenses while being at CERN. So um, CERN, I'm, I'm really most grateful. Uh, CERN puts a lot of money in that. So I can, uh, I have this very awesome position. I can really bring teachers together. Uh, and these, this includes teachers from countries where you could usually not even think about traveling to Geneva because let's face it, it is really expensive yeah. and I'm yeah. not happy with that. So I'm very, very grateful that CERN really provides me with this budget so I can bring teachers from all around the world. We usually cover teachers from every continent. And uh, yeah, uh, I, I'm really excited about our progress. <laughs> I have to admit. <laughs> that comes out really clearly. <laughs> right, so... <laughs> That's that's great because, like Geneva and Switzerland in general, it's a very expensive place, uh, and but that's not an issue because those expenses are covered. So the yes. the teacher would just need to buy a ticket, I guess, um, if they're coming from Australia, just fly over to Geneva, and then your two weeks program and expenses are all covered. Yes. Uh, so is the application process uh, for people that come from member states versus non-member states is the same? It's exactly the same. So for the international programs, there's only one web form, um, let's say per program, because there are two programs. So we have two web forms, but they are almost identical. However, not quite identical because otherwise teachers would use the same answers for the same questions. So we, we are very mean, I have to admit. So we have different questions, which sound very similar, but they're not similar. So, I mean, they're not equal. Um, yeah. 
And so, uh, but there is no distinction between where teachers come from. Every teacher who wants to take part has to submit yeah. the same application, which also includes a one-minute video uh, so that we also get a better idea of who you are, what you're interested in. And it is a chance for teachers to convince us that they are the ideal candidate for our programs. So, yeah, it is um, competitive. And uh, I think, like, you've got to be serious. It is a commitment you put in resources. Exactly. Yeah. The teacher will need to put the resources so you, yeah, you, you have to select. You've got to be careful. Um, you said earlier, like the program has been running for about 30 years, right? It's not something that just happened 20, 20, 20 years? 20 years. Yeah. 20 years. So in that time, are there examples of students that after the experience that they had, either with their teacher coming back from the teacher's program at CERN and talking about it, uh, or themselves actually visiting with a teacher. Uh, so is there an example of a student that you know, became eventually a physicist, a scientist, and now perhaps is working there at CERN or some other part of the world doing fundamental particles research? It's exactly uh, like this. Uh, we have... Um uh, we have so many stories like that. Uh, you, whatever you want, you, you name it. Uh, we have uh, students who were taught by teachers who came to CERN first, went home, uh, and then uh, taught their students very well. And then the students uh, decided, well, this is now my aim. I want to be. Uh, I want to work at CERN at some point. And six, seven years later, they were here as either a PhD student or a postdoc already. Uh, so we have that story. We also have the other story that um, uh, one thing I uh, I was very impressed with. Um, a teacher came to our program and learned a lot about medical applications because uh, while we were medical. talking a lot about the World Wide Web, yeah. uh, there are so many other spin-offs and technology transfer uh, examples. And I think the the most prominent one. Are medical applications. I mean, nowadays, uh, we use accelerated uh, proton or hadron yeah, or, yeah. or ion beams to treat certain cancer uh, cells. Uh, but we also use particle detectors like our detectors in uh, at CERN in hospitals. So this is really one uh, thing where we never thought about it, but it's something where fundamental research just leads to. And so this one teacher, she uh, learned about it and she went home. And then uh, she had one student who was really debating whether she wants to study medicine mm. or physics. It was both in her interest. And when she then learned about medical applications, she decided, okay, I will study physics because there's still a chance for me to go into medicine and she is now an accelerator uh, beam i think she's a beam scientist at the moment in one of the largest um, uh, treatment centers in europe uh, which was only opened recently so i mean uh, this is something where you can really yeah. pinpoint if the teacher would not have told her um, this student, uh, she would have never, uh, she, I mean, she would probably still have gone into medicine. So it's not, you know, not a lost soul, but it just gives a, a larger perspective to students what they can do. It's sometimes you don't really know what, what will my life be if I study, let's say, physics. Exactly, exactly. Um, will it be me in front of a blackboard and uh, breathing in the dust of the chalk? Uh, but there is so much more. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. I think this is a great example because it also shows what is possible to do when you combine two areas of science, so pretty much like every other part of life, uh, that traditionally are not really aligned. So in Newton's time, he would think about gravity and uh, a physician, right? A physician would think about how to treat a wound and they've got nothing to talk about. Like, And then you fast forward 200 years, and a particle physicist now is using the exact same knowledge about detecting new types of particles, uh, 
to treat cancer. And so that, that example just, um, you know, uh, exemplifies that this is possible. And in modern science in general, this t- tends to be a very frequent occurrence. So more experiences actually are needed in order to generate those cross-fertilizations between branches of science. Yeah, I, I fully agree. <laughs> and uh, the web, <laughs> the web data, course, data science. What Networks. people don't know is that the touch screen of our phones or, or all modern touch screens <laughs> really? were invented at CERN. Really? And it was not in any way so we can now look at cat pictures, which is nice now. But back then, it was really, it was in the 70s, uh, we built a large control room for one of our uh, accelerators. And one of the technicians said, oh, there are a lot of buttons. I don't like this. And he had a very good supervisor because when he said, look, I, I'm thinking of, you know, designing a, a, a touch kind of thing. No one knew what it was. Uh, the supervisor didn't say, are you crazy? Let's just, you know, install Use the buttons. buttons. That's your job. The supervisor <laughs> said, sounds interesting, but you will have to invent it. And the guy was like, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and the supervisor no has problem. always said, you have four more months. And uh, after <laughs> four, four months, months, he had the first uh, prototype. I have to admit, the, the capacitive uh, touchscreens, the idea or the technology yeah. was, already, was already out there, but it was really the first working examples. Uh, first working example was installed at CERN. And uh, the reason why it's now in every major device and everyone uses them like on a daily basis is CERN, whatever we do, we make it open access. Yeah. CERN is really, this is a strong policy at CERN and uh, whatever we do, we do for society. So we make everything available. If people are bored, I hope not during our interview, but maybe at some point people might be bored. You can, they can go to our website, CERN.ch um, or uh, just home.cern because we have a high level <laughs> domain now. And uh, there is the CDS, it's the CERN document server where people can download whatever they want. If, if, if someone wants to build their own large Hadron Collider, the blueprint for this machine is online. So, uh, yeah. Well, since you mentioned it. There we are. <laughs> <laughs> well, look at this control room. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Yes. So you go to CERN, so then there is. For example, resources. resources um, yeah. And on resources, you find everything. You can uh, either by topic or by format or by audience. And uh, the moment you click on anything, it will lead you in a, in a deep <laughs> network of uh, millions of different resources. And these range from research papers <laughs> to videos to animations uh, to whatever you want. Uh, now, there is just so much out there. This is why Tim Berners-Lee invented the web, right, at CERN, because CERN had so much to share with the world that this was really the only way to do it. You can't print this on books or magazines and share. It has to be on an electronic worldwide medium, instant. Exactly. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah. This is amazing. So you've got augmented reality here. Uh, I'm not going to attempt to click on this uh, because it's probably going to want me to download something to play the augmented <laughs> reality. Uh, but you've got likely, yeah. Um, uh, you've got artists there, microscopic black oh, yeah. hole. Because we were talking about that before we started recording and about like whether there has been a black hole created artificially in CERN. Uh, that's that's is very, it true or not? That's a very delicate <laughs> delicate discussion. So we have to be very careful okay. here. Um, careful in that sense that uh, it's difficult to tell uh, people, yes, we do want to see uh, microscopic black holes. Uh, that is true. But of course, the moment people hear black holes, they, he- they they have the notion in their head that, oh, 
so CERN wants to, you know, create something that will suck up the world. Or I mean, that no, is Hollywood. Not, and <laughs> exactly. And uh, we are so, uh, but of course, if we were to see something like this, it would hint us into a completely new branch of physics. I mean, if we were yeah. to see microscopic black holes, which I believe, or I'm, I'm, I'm afraid it's very unlikely, uh, but if we were to see that, we would not even see the black hole itself. It would uh, not be stable for any uh, reasonable man. time amount for for us it's like 10 to the minus i think 20 something uh, seconds so it, but we would see the the leftover parts of it so we would yeah. say oh there was something and that would tell us hey there might be new dimensions or more dimensions than uh, what we know for example yeah so, that, this for the forefront of research and and what we are looking at at the moment is it's true it's an artistic representation of what something like this could look like so it's really uh, that that is actually very accurate to what we are um, what we are creating on a on a daily basis uh, second per second hundreds of millions of those collisions that you can see this is visualization of it of course no one is looking at those pictures and you know takes out a ruler and say oh that's uh, it's a red line all our computers take care of that but of course we do want to visualize what it looks what it might look like and we also visualize it to see if our detectors are performing well, because sometimes the detector, there are some sensors in it, uh, which are maybe not firing. And then we see it in this visualization rather than um, uh, by looking at, you know, zeros and ones. Um, well, so I'm, I'm curious. If, yeah. yeah, sorry. So no, I'm just, just curious a bit. Oh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> we should really do this interview in, in one location. I'll send you my questions. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, since we were talking about the artistic representation, um, CERN is really, I mean, another reason why I enjoy being here so much. We also have a huge arts at CERN program where we have on a regular basis artists in residence who are, for example, doing uh, representations of what's going on, but they are also getting in touch with the scientists at, uh, at CERN and try to translate that into an art artistic perspective because that's another way of communicating our yes. science because i mean we are talking about very abstract and, and very difficult things to grasp so uh the arts i think is a fantastic uh, opportunity to to do more in this sense and so CERN also puts a lot of effort there and um, and so yeah that's also something which i like a lot yeah um in in stem education we talk a lot about art and you know how art can bind very well with science and engineering because they're both you know, human endeavors and um art is a lot about communication and how do you communicate concepts like this like you collide particles and and what happens so you ask an artist right yeah and they come up with a visualization like this so this is as i wanted to ask you like yeah. how how real is this picture? I know it's it's an, an artistic representation, but it stems from something real, right? So, in my mind, I there's a collision happening right here in the middle. Two particles. Is it like two electrons that just smashed? Um, at, so at the moment, so um, uh, at the moment we are colliding protons with protons uh, yeah. mainly. From time to time, we also collide even larger objects like lead ions. But uh, this uh, most likely uh, was a proton-proton collision yeah. where um, it's absolutely true. This is, I would say, a very realistic representation of how we can imagine what's going on. Uh, it's, a, it's a slice through one of our large detectors. You can see in the lower bottom and down on the right, you see Atlas, Atlas. experiment. Yeah. The Atlas is really the largest particle detector at CERN, uh, as I said, about 
46 meters long, 26 meters high. And in the center of this detector, which is uh, every particle detector at CERN and in high energy physics is kind of shaped like, a, like an onion. So you have different layers from the very inside all the way to the outside. And if you then collide particles in the center of it and you have collisions, what happens in these collisions is uh, that hundreds, if not thousands of new particles are created. So it's not that we break up anything. It's really through the, through the transformation of the collision energy uh, hundreds of new particles are created. And this is what is uh, shown in this picture. So they, they fly in, in any given direction. And uh, those that have an electric charge are then um, uh, interact uh, they are with following, the uh, they interact with the magnetic field. So yeah, they interact also with the material, but we also have a strong magnetic field, which uh, uh, is present in all the particle detector inner uh, parts. And so they are then bent on trajectories depending on the electric charge, because uh, we have this beautiful concept, uh, depending on which country you're from, you either call it maybe Lorentz force, for example, yeah. or the right hand rule. And so that works for particles with different direct, uh, electric charges right. in different directions. So those particles that are, let's say negative, go in the one direction, and those that are positively charged go in the other direction. And so this minor trick already allows us to distinguish everything that is, ah, that's negative, that's positive. So that's yeah. one of the many um, uh, anal analysis uh, tricks we have. And you can see in this image, there are a lot of particles that only make it to this one uh, circle, uh, which is like uh, that we are looking at. So they don't continue there anymore. So these are most likely, let's say, uh, small particles such okay, as electrons yeah. or positrons, exactly. So they then really, they are stopped in this one layer. But you can see there are more particles uh, going more to the outside. Yes, yeah. And these are high, more high energetic particles such as, let's say, protons and neutrons. But you can even have a muon going all the way through the detector, not depositing uh, all of its energy throughout the way and just continuing its way and they are not even stopped um, in the uh, in the detector. So that can happen as well. Uh, I, I got to ask now just to, to see how fast science is moving and, um, and how, how these instruments contribute to this velocity. We, we are looking at perhaps, uh, I don't know, dozens or maybe even hundreds of particles in this picture. It's not just one or two, right? It's not just a couple of neutrons. These are... Like, Different, different kinds. Yes. Yeah. Uh, how many of those did we know about, say, 20 or 30 years ago? Uh, you're testing my historic knowledge. Oh, my goodness. All right. <laughs> oh, like <laughs> approximately. I want to know, like, how new is all this? Uh, like, Einstein, I don't think Einstein knew about all this because it was perhaps exactly. theoretically maybe, but there was no way to, to prove uh, that such particles um, existed. No. I mean, I, I will not. I will not go into detail in in definite uh, years, but it's absolutely true. We have this saying of the the zoo of particle physics, um, because in the 1960s and onwards, more and more particle physics was uh, pursued, and we we discovered new particles, or so we thought. Yeah. So we discovered really, really a lot of new particles, and uh, we just gave them names, and we really sorted them. And at some point, it, it became a task like like in in biology. Oh, you find a new plant, you name it, and that's. <laughs> Classification. Uh, so we exact classification, and you ca we call it a zoo, and it's something that I'm not really a big fan of nowadays because it is really anachronistic. It it, it conveys the image that uh, particle physics means hundreds of particles that everyone has to keep in their mind. Yeah. But gladly, 
in the, in the 60s, um, uh, different research teams proposed the idea, which was then uh, later proven or turned out to be the precise model, that we have even smaller particles, which we call quarks. quarks and those yeah. quarks, they can... Um, they can combine. You can either have one quark and an antiquark to make a meson, or you can have three quarks or three antiquarks to make either a hadron or an anti-hadron. Ah, so you and can have so chemistry have then with the quarks and the... You can like essentially have chemistry with those fundamental particles and make things. Exactly, exactly. And so we have six quarks that we know of, and I, well, for now it really doesn't look like there are more. And they can combine in different, uh, you know, you have different permutations, and that of course leads to a lot of new composite particles. And um, in the beginning, we only found those composite particles, and we just named them. But then, with, as our uh, experiments uh, progressed, we found, oh, no, there are smaller particles, which at the moment we really call elementary particles. So this is really for yeah, now. Yeah. We don't see any inner structure. In physics, you should never say no, but, I well, it, it, it really doesn't look very promising at the moment that there is uh, another stage down. Uh, and so yeah. those quarks, these six quarks plus their anti-quarks, so we have 12 quarks, um, these are the fundamental building blocks together with uh, the electrons and its antiparticle, the anti-electron, uh, the positron. Uh, and so with quarks, and out of the six quarks, uh, you only need two. You need the up and the down quark, because with those you can make a proton and a neutron, yeah. and uh, with an electron, that's all. That's <laughs> all the matter that we are made of. Um, <laughs> Is essentially one up quark, one down quark, and an electron. Because with the quarks, you can make protons and neutrons. With that, you can uh, combine them to make atoms. They can combine to make molecules. And that's how we describe a matter. I mean, this is the best model we have at hand at, at, uh, for now. And so the idea that there are hundreds of particles that even, I mean, you know, students have to memorize the names, absolutely not. There are only a very, very small number of small particles that make up everything and the names are really not important so if anyone is you know worried that you have to memorize what is what no that's something you look up that's what the web is for right <laughs> that's what the web is for exactly yes yes so or books books are also okay uh, you mean paper books uh, <laughs> so um i'm just thinking like the kind of things that can really change society and what society think of itself and of course what humans think about themselves and i think of a couple of things like one might be finding intelligent life in the universe we can start with bacteria on mars but then intelligent life but the second that's quite quite hard right but the second which is also hard but perhaps you just need a larger large hadron collider <laughs> Um, is those fundamental particles and just get to the bottom of this structure that makes up everything and understand what is down there because from there you can start building up everything and then you've got an understanding of not just what's happening on on earth but anywhere in the universe multiple dimensions perhaps can come out of that but that's just a fundamental knowledge you're absolutely right. Um, I, I would not necessarily say that we are looking for even smaller particles uh, because, or let's put it this way, the model that we have for now, we call it the standard model of particle physics, is a beautiful theory. It, it's, just, it's just beautiful. And we hate it 
because it only explains about 5% of what we see in the universe. It yeah. explains all the matter. I mean, it's, it's very relevant to our life. It explains us. Uh, we can use it to explain what we are made of. But we know by looking at the universe that only about 5% of what we see out there oh, is really yeah. made of the stuff that we are made of. There is uh, about 25% uh, that we call dark matter where the only thing we know is there is something that uh, behaves like matter, meaning it behaves gravitational, but it doesn't interact electromagnetically. So uh, it's dark. That's our best guess at the moment. We call it dark. We don't know what it is. Our assumption is that these, this dark matter is made of particles because in science, you always start with what you have and you try to apply it to uh, new observations that don't fit your theory. So, of course, we are very successful explaining everything with a small set of particles. So we are now trying to find particles that would make up dark matter. But it doesn't mean that there have to be those particles. There could be something different that we don't even know about. There could be uh, a different behavior of gravity. After all, we don't really fully understand gravity in terms of quantum field theory. So there is still some, there is some room for Nobel Prizes. Um, we don't want to have all the Nobel Prizes ourselves. If students or teachers are key, yes. be our guests. And that's why we need new physicists, right? That you're helping to train and, and uh, get on board. Exactly. In the search. Yep. Yeah. And, and also, if you now add up, we have 5% matter, we have 25% dark matter, where we at least have some ideas. That leaves us with 70% um, what we call idea. dark energy. Uh, Sorry? I have an idea about what that might be. Um, just well, don't tell anyone. Call because us. Call <laughs> us. Like, have you, have you? We would need any help. <laughs> I was having this conversation with uh, Leo, who is uh, 11, my, my first son, he's 11 years old. He kind of believes that it's uh, we are living in a simulation and those dark matter regions of the universe are just, you know, just like in Minecraft, they, the computer only generates part of the world in which you are because it's how much memory it has and that's blocks. So <laughs> okay. maybe that's just not generated by the simulator. <sighs> Maybe. Could you please, please send my best wishes to your son and encourage him to write down his ideas on a paper, send them to us. We really, at, at this stage, we take everything and uh, because we really don't know, we, especially with the, with the remaining 70% uh, we call dark energy, we have a name for it because yeah. we see the universe is expanding, but we don't even, you know, we have theories, but we don't even know where to start with it. So um, it is really true. The standard model of particle physics is beautiful, but we already know it's not the last step. So um, maybe coming back to the original question, it is true. If we want to advance our knowledge in that sense, we need to we need to to further our knowledge. We need to do more physics. There is a huge debate going on at the moment. Uh, where we should go. Uh, of course, the history of, of CERN or any high energy physics lab shows us that you always go larger and larger because uh, it's very simple. If you want to reach or if you want to discover new particles, until now, you had to build larger machines because with larger circumference comes along larger energy and with yeah. uh, energy of the acceleration. And with that, you have a higher probability of detecting new and even more heavier uh, particles. So, of course, at the moment, CERN is... Uh, investigating uh, new options and there are different projects which are at the moment in the feasibility study uh, uh, stage. So we, we concluded uh, feasibility studies to either let's go for a very large linear accelerator mm. or a very large circular accelerator. And here we are talking about uh, roughly 100 kilometers of <laughs> circumference. Um, I, don't get me wrong, I, I'm absolutely in favor of that because 
course. After all, the return in investment in that, even I mean, even if the worst case scenario is that we built a larger machine, uh, which of course is supported by the physics so far, so that we say, okay, there could be something new. And even if we, after probably 100 years of running the machine, or let's say 60 years of running the machine, uh, we don't find anything new, um, which I even think is unlikely. But I mean, all the things that come along with it, uh, I mean, starting with jobs, starting yeah. with training the scientists, and advance our knowledge and the technology. Yeah. I mean, I, no one knows what will be the new thing in our lives, but for sure, 30 years ago, no one thought that through the internet, uh, the world would become such a connected place. I mean, this is really the revolution of our times. And um, I'm very happy it started at CERN because that still enables us to have a free connection and a free access to the internet. I mean, um, that's a discussion we will have at some it's, point. I'm yeah. very happy for now, <laughs> the consortium and especially Tim Berners-Lee is a very strong advocate of having it free. And it, that, that's, in my opinion, how it should be. Um, so I'm very happy CERN has this open access policy that the web is free. It, it's true. Like It's kind of a different topic to... Uh, core discussion but imagine if the web had been invented i don't know in apple's labs or in microsoft labs or whatever it wouldn't be what it is today right we'd be living in a totally different society perhaps information would be a lot less um you know accessible uh without some kind of ticket <laughs> membership I, I, yeah I, th I think i think that's absolutely likely yes yes yeah so Great. <laughs> That's where, you know, taxpayers, millions and millions, billions actually go. And it really makes a big difference, uh, not just in the state state members, uh, sorry, uh, member, states member states of CERN, yeah. Yeah, but globally. Um, it's just, a, it's a revolution, as you said. Yeah, um, and it's not that expensive, actually. I mean, um, I'm, uh, I'm, yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not fully aware of your bank account. It's definitely a lot of money for me. Of, I mean, I, yeah. the moment you talk about billions, of course, that's a lot of money, but it's really, really not well, a lot of money in if terms you could, of a country or yeah, um, um, just or a, any state. Just to understand the scale, like. Um, and everybody, pretty much people are familiar with their own countries, for example, military expenditure or education sector expenditure or um, welfare. Like, what is the budget for CERN around like, to do all this work with the teachers to do basically to fulfill its mission every year? What kind of uh, budget are we looking at? It's very simple. Uh, the annual budget of CERN that is uh, given to us from the member states and the associate member states is roughly 1.1 billion Swiss francs. So it's uh, 1,000 million Swiss francs. Um, that's roughly 1 billion euros. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping you can now convert that into Australian. Uh, uh, I'm model. using the web. <laughs> there we go. There we go. To AUD, let's see. So that's I'm um, just putting in one billion Swiss francs to AUD. That's uh, yeah. seriously this is um this is just one point three billion Australian dollars, uh, which is really yeah. um, it's like one quarter of the profit of one of our big banks, like the profit, like which goes, it's exactly. like it's nothing. It's my 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 prime example that was so mind blowing to me. So I'm uh, uh, I graduated at the University of Vienna in Austria. It is 
by far the largest university of the country, but it's not the only one. And the annual budget of the University of Vienna is roughly the same annual budget as CERN. We are talking about roughly 1 billion uh, euros a year. That's what the university costs. And so, of course, this is money. It's a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. I I would love to have, but I, I don't think I would love to have this kind of money. But for a country, and especially now if you talk about CERN, uh, this money is provided by member states, by um, 22 member states and the associate member states. So everyone only has a small share. And if you divide, and of course this is a cheap trick, but if you divide it per, per inhabitant Person, of yeah. all the member states, we are talking about roughly 500 million people living in all the countries. So yeah. everyone uh, of us pays about two francs per year for CERN. And less, of course this is a cheap trick because dividing any number uh, through 500 million... <laughs> But still, it's really not a lot of money. And um, so that's why, of course, I'm, I'm a big favor. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of spending and funding research and advancement in any field. But um, uh, it's a discussion we have to have. I mean, after all, uh, money is tight. Money is always the issue. So, uh, yeah, but it's something that I, I feel very deeply about, that it's not yeah. too much. Uh, the return on investment is just amazing. Um... As we said, like CERN has revolutionized the world uh, at least once uh, with the discoveries in physics. The, the, those things take a lot longer than the web took to to not tr- transform society. But you know, if you think about energy, um, uh, materials, space travel, <laughs> I think those <laughs> those um, uh, benefits are down the road uh, until technology catches yeah. up with the research. And hopefully um, uh, using our knowledge and the scientific method also to tackle what I personally consider probably the, the, the most critical thing is climate change. Um, yeah. After all, we need to, I mean, humankind, we, we have to do something. This is, uh, there is no debate about it. And uh, if, for example, CERN, uh, we have the, the LHC computing grid, for example. We have a huge network that spans the whole uh, globe uh, where a lot of data centers just combine to share their computing power. And and this can also be used to, for example, uh, calculate very difficult uh, climate models, for example, to at least predict what can happen. And so this is also being used. Um, and of course, it's, it's, a, it's I would say, a, 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 a minor contribution, but it's definitely um, one of the most important yeah. of our times. Uh, yeah, yeah. Convergent. Well, Jeff, uh, I still have like a, a million questions about uh, physics, or should I say a billion? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, uh, Carl Sagan uh, just uh, pops in mind when I t- when I think about the universe. Uh, Carl Sagan comes in mind, uh, but I, I, because uh, it's we just hit the hour mark, uh, I'd like to ask you just a, a few closing questions. And um, the sure. first one is like uh, for the students and teachers that are listening to us and they want the same experience. What what do they need to do? Obviously, you've got the website. Is that where the, the research begins and the process? Um, for high school teachers, absolutely. High school teachers should just go to teachers.cern.ch and uh, check out all the information that is on our teacher program website. Absolutely. For high school students uh, or students in general who are interested, they should really go to cern.ch or home.cern. And uh, there they can find information on not only how to visit CERN, because after all, all our visits are free, but you have to book it in advance so that you get a slot when you come here. But if they want to get in touch with CERN on a professional level, meaning that 
someone finishes high school and then goes to university and they study anything. And it really doesn't have to be physics. Only a small amount of people are physicists. I think the majority are engineers or IT specialists, but we also have lawyers or doctors. I mean, uh, so you study something and then uh, I think the best entryway for anyone who wants to work at CERN at some point or to figure out if working at CERN is something for you is the uh, summer student program, uh, which is really for university students. So in their roughly speaking third year of university studies. And if they apply and if they are selected, they can come to CERN for up to three months in summer, fully paid to Swiss standards so they can survive. That's very important. And they are here not in any way to, you know, uh, cook coffee or whatever. They are really working in concrete projects and it's just amazing. And I think everyone who works at CERN who is a uh, holder of an indefinite contract, if you ask them, how did you come to CERN? I think about 90% of them will tell you, well, I was a summer student once and then uh, they just finished their studies. They came back as a master or PhD student and then uh, it just goes on for the lucky ones who make their long-lasting career turn, yes. Yes, uh, you're showing the Visit at CERN uh, website at the moment. Yeah, Visit CERN. But yeah. you can visit CERN um, as a tourist, essentially, to, to see the, the sites there. You've got a lot of uh, places where civilians essentially can go. Uh, exactly and even if you cannot book your tour because they do book out quite fast we have two uh, permanent exhibitions at CERN which are again free of cost and you don't have to book in advance for that you can just show up and uh, visit our exhibitions which also gives you a very nice idea of of how the life at CERN looks like yes yeah Uh, I guess this is the complex here we're looking at uh, CERN Toys. You're looking at a small, a small snapshot of our complex. Uh, CERN, uh, the main site f- per se, is already large. Uh, we are talking about about two kilometers in length, half yeah. a kilometer in width. So this is, um, yeah, okay, a small snapshot of CERN. Yeah, we'll use the web to to see <laughs> the sites <laughs> and plan the visit. All right. Um, now, uh, just a couple of closing questions. Uh, I like books. And I like to read. Um, and uh, I'm interested in particle physics. I, I like I like to learn about what is happening right now. Uh, I listen to Neil deGrasse Tyson a lot, and my kids are uh, uh, as well. Uh, what would you recommend for you know reading material, not necessarily CERN, but um, like something that can tell you about what is happening right now in with the latest in particle research and you know, physics research and the models that they use to understand the universe. Recommendations? Absolutely. I'm, I'm just thinking um, if I know anything that is really, you know, published like very recently. There is, I mean, there is this holy, uh, the holy book of particle physics uh, written by Griffith uh, called Elementary Particles. Yeah. Um, where I would not necessarily call the whole book, you know, accessible to the general public, but at least the first two chapters are, in my opinion, still uh, the two best chapters are explaining the history and also explaining the fundamental concepts of particle physics, which, as I said, is not sorting particles into small categories. It's the overarching principles. It's the symmetries uh, that are really nicely covered in, in this book. So that's really the, the my one go-to uh, solution. There are a lot of, I would say, um, more popular science books, but... Uh, to be to be super honest, uh, at the moment I can only think of them in the German language, and I hate myself for that. <laughs> um, but after all, I'm Austrian, so this is my <laughs> my main language in in this sense. Um, I 
I'm not aware of the of any books at the moment that are like really up to date right now. It's okay. But what what I what I like to point out is that especially in the CERN field and the high energy physics community, there are a lot of people uh, online on Twitter. At the moment, I think Twitter is the um, is the resource per se for anything going on in particle physics, and there are fantastic scientists at CERN who are really motivated in doing science communication. I have I have fantastic colleagues of mine, Claire Lee, for example. You can include Kato. some of those. Um, in the, in the I, I, I would definitely share some of yeah. the of, of of their Twitter. Uh, profiles and just by following them because they are very active you get uh, links to uh, ongoing discussions and also there are online uh, forums where people can ask questions a lot of our scientists are very active in explaining those questions because it is one of our main missions it's 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 a very difficult subject so we want to do every effort it takes to make it accessible to the general public so i think yeah, twitter at the moment yeah. Is, is a very so good resource. I'm, I'm thinking of Quora as well. Um, if you're familiar with Quora, there's a lot of physicists. That's where a lot of CERN scientists are active answering yeah. questions on Quora. And, uh, and the articles there, are, some articles especially, are very good. Like I think that I'm reading uh, a peer-reviewed <laughs> journal article, but no, it's somebody that just answered somebody else's question. So great. Yeah. Um, let's have got a couple of questions. Um, did you have... Now, this is more of a personal question. As you were growing up, you know, you, you came in, you got into a path that led you to become a particle physicist. And uh, actually, you are a teacher yourself. We should have said that in the beginning. So you are a teacher. You've taught physics, yep. philosophy. I think I saw in your profile. Uh, let's see. Uh, there you go. Um, you've taught at a high school, you've taught physics, philosophy, and psychology, which I found out like a very interesting combination. So I wonder, like, were you influenced by somebody? It could be a, a teacher at school. It could be somebody that you heard about, like a scientist. Or did you kind of, you collected a lot of influences from a lot of different people and, you know, they, they helped you along the way? Um Yes, absolutely, yes. Uh, so it is true, I started uh, as a high school physics, philosophy and psychology teacher. And uh, the decision for me uh, becoming or studying to become a teacher, that was very clear uh, during high school because I had uh, at least three or four just amazing teachers myself. And uh, we all know in the in the daily school practice, the teacher is the most important uh person it's it's nothing but that it's really if the teacher is good and if the teacher is motivated and enthusiastic you have a long uh, forever lasting impact on your students so that was the case for me as well i had fantastic teachers who cared about us who challenged us and i really enjoyed that so for me it was clear i want to become a teacher my love for physics was there from the very beginning or i mean also thanks to my fantastic physics teacher uh, so uh, I then started reading a lot of books from uh, very, very good physicists. I mean, starting with Richard Feynman and uh, also Heisenberg himself. Really? Yeah. Um, and, and all of them really had a strong, um, uh, a strong, um, they, were, they, they were drawn to philosophy because after all, yeah. the moment physics stops, yeah. philosophy starts. And so that was one of my big loves. And I was very fortunate in Austria where I studied and I was a teacher. You have to combine two subjects to be a high school teacher. And I could combine physics and another subject, which in Austria is called philosophy and psychology. So I got the best out of all three uh, areas. And I was really, really happy uh, teaching uh, all of it. 
but of course it's it's really this is exactly where my interests are where where physics stops where philosophy starts what is the things we can say about stuff that we don't even know what it is yeah. i mean how yeah. can we talk about particle physics when we don't even know what a particle really is we know how to describe it don't get me wrong but we don't know what it is and so that's where my where I'm, and i was influenced by just fantastic teachers and and professors and for me it's very easy to define what made them fantastic it's really they were enthusiastic they had a lot of knowledge that they were very happy to share with us and yeah. i think that's that's all it takes uh, shows the value of the teacher or um, and how undervalued are in, in many modern yes. societies However, it's uh, interesting um, what you're saying about philosophy, especially in Austria. Uh, in my PhD, I spent a lot of time reading Karl Popper, an epistemologist. It, like, it's not exactly a, a philosopher as most people uh, think of him, but he he is a philosopher of knowledge in particular. Yeah, and I spent a lot of time reading his books. Actually, have them. Uh, the, the only four books that I've got in front of me are Karl Popper's book uh, books, wow. and um, they they really. Th help like not culpable in particular but philosophy in general really helps you think deeply about you know the human condition the world and i think it's particularly important for scientists and engineers to study philosophy because that connects them back to being human so oh absolutely yeah Part of STEM. I yeah. think we should put philosophy in stem <laughs> education i i fully agree i fully agree <laughs> great well, uh, Jeff, it was a real pleasure. Like I had so much fun talking to you and uh, like, just looking me at the too, background there. Uh, uh, constantly, Star Trek is is uh, in my mind. And uh, like uh, 200 years from now, like with all this effort and all this research and the greatest minds and like, the next generations coming through, I think we are going to be in the maybe Delta Quadrant. Um, hopefully not fighting Klingons, but exploring. Exactly. So thank and you for, for yeah, <laughs> and discovering, and um, it's just amazing. So thank you. Like it's been a really fun hour and fifteen minutes for me. I learned a lot. Wow. <laughs> thank you so much. I, I thank you so much for inviting me and having me. I really enjoyed it myself. Thank you. Great. Oh, have a great day, and I hope you discover something amazing today. If not me, I hope my teachers <laughs> will. <laughs> awesome. That's all for this episode. The notes for this episode that include links to many of the resources mentioned and information on how to get in touch with Jeff are available on our website, techexplorations.com. Each episode comes with its own page on the Tech Explorations website and a gold mine of information in the notes. This Demiverse podcast episode was produced by Tech Explorations. Do you have any questions or suggestions? Would you like to nominate a friend or colleague to be our guest? please email us at pa at texplore.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for the name of our podcast, STEMiverse. That's S-T-E-M-I-V-E-R-S-E. -E -E. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time.